In this episode, I speak with Joe Duggan, a doctoral researcher at the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. Duggan devised this really interesting project, which I speak with him about, in which he asks Australia's leading climate researchers to compose letters on how climate change makes them feel. Um, He says it's the first time anyone had asked them this question. And that then expanded to a discussion with the global science community, and the project went viral. So I want to speak with him about that project, but also why now he's decided to bring it back. Why, maybe in our current moment of crisis, it's necessary to make links between scientific knowledge and emotional intelligence. Thanks so much for agreeing to speak with me. You know, I I discovered the work that you've been doing uh, because I myself am an educator who is looking for especially emotional tactics of engagement. Uh, you know, as a means of opening up a conversation with my students. So um, the first question is, you know, uh, uh, it stems from an article uh, by Gaia Vince in The Guardian, uh, which came out at the beginning of this year. And and this this article is concerned with how scientists are coping with ecological grief. And and this this article for me took, you know, Vince away from her, her, you know, brilliant writing on the birth of the so-called Anthropocene and into more emotional territory. And in that article, she speaks with Steve Simpson, a professor of marine biology and global change, uh, who explains that his research left him feeling, quote, broken and seemed to compel him into this, this binary decision between either com- completely quitting cli- climate science or trying to internalize the pain he was experiencing. Uh, he admits that usually scientists tend to um, internalize those feelings and just, you know, focus on trying to be objective. Uh, but then the article takes this important turn toward emotion when he says that he found this third option, uh, a way of using uh, an emotional response to climate change in order to form new questions. And I wondered, does this sort of match your own emotional journey as a climate scientist and climate communicator? Did you start from an emotional place or did you eventually get there? It's really interesting. Um, well, I think the key thing to point out is that um, I'm definitely a climate communicator, but um, not a climate scientist. So I have been a marine scientist in a past life, um, but now I spend most of my time as a, as a professional science communicator. Um, but in regards to, to climate, I, I certainly went on quite a personal journey. I, um, I think in the early days, you know, when I was still a, a passionate undergrad um, learning science, you know, I was coming from a place of, of optimism and, and this naive hope that, you know, you might be the person to change the world, as, as a lot of people do. Um, and, and as I learned more about the problem and started to understand it a little bit more deeply, you know, that, that hope went into to apathy, to anger, you know, you get these spikes of passion. Um, but for from a personal sense, I certainly... Um, I certainly experienced climate fatigue, um, but but now, and maybe we can unpack it a little bit later, I've found a new resolve. Um, There was something quite interesting, though, that I found out of Steve Simpson's comments, uh, and and you sort of uh, indicated that in in your question there, but this this feeling, um, you know, he believes that scientists can now sort of communicate that grief and work together to support each other which I think is something that really an unexpected thing that came out of the Is This How You Feel project for me. Um, At the beginning, it was centred around just giving the scientists a new channel to communicate to the masses. 
Um, but this sort of tangential positive spin-off was that every time a new scientist went to write a letter, uh, they would inevitably go and have a look at the, the pre-existing letters that were on the website. And all of a sudden they realised they weren't alone. <laughs> they had this, this network of other scientists that were going through the same emotions that they were. Um, and so, yeah, inadvertently, it, it became this space to communicate not necessarily just grief, but any of those emotions that were coming through. Um, but, but, yeah, certainly the idea of emotional grief or ecological grief, I think it's very real. Um, and it's not being necessarily on the front line. I think I experience it in a different way. You know, I'm, I'm almost a middleman in, in the communication of, of the phenomena. Um, I'm not necessarily collecting the data points that are that are showing the graphs that are at times breaking people's hearts. You know, that's interesting. Um, you know, Vince also cites Ashley Consolo, a scientist working with Indigenous Inuit communities here in Canada and Labrador. And Consolo makes it clear that that emotional dimension, right? Um, those feelings are tied to a core sense of self in specific communities, especially. Um, she explains that this, quote, sort of profound existential question is deep and complex. And yet scientists are still, to some extent, expected to be removed, um, to not express these non-cathartic negative emotions like grief, anger, anxiety. And, and you're saying that you've created a community where it seems like they've, they've you know, been enabled to do that. But the interesting thing is that there are these established norms within the scientific community that determine whether or to what extent one is authorized to show emotion. So, for example, Roger Harriman points out in his article on these key moments in the development of a more emotional uh, register for science communication, you know, these moments where experts like publicly weep when relating their research. And, you know, Harriman says, the quote, the way people respond to media messages, in fact, depends on many factors, including age, life experiences, values are key, he says, along with prior beliefs. You know, if emotion is undeniably um, an, a more indelible way to communicate, is it still, do you think, inextricably tied to identity, norms of belonging? I mean, how do you negotiate this difficult landscape of communication? It's a really <laughs> complex challenge. I mean, I, I think what Roger's saying there, you know, in essence is that you need to know your audience. And, and for me, that's comms 101, you know, but, but the challenge then becomes reaching the right audience. I mean, you can know what makes your audience tick and try to communicate in the in the right way if you could speak for, to them directly. But the challenge becomes trying to reach them. Um, and and I think really, you know, emotions are a fraught way to communicate. Um, but it's but it's a different way, and it may well reach a different audience. Now I say it's a fraught way because, just like you indicated in in the question there. There's these societal norms or let's call them cultural expectations and not necessarily culture in, in the sense of like a First Nations people, but culture is in our, our little bubble and sphere that we operate in with the, the same expectations placed on, on each person in that sphere. If we think of a scientist, you know, we are, we are taught about the scientific method. We are taught about being impartial and unbiased and letting, you know, communicating in a way that means other scientists can repeat what we've done. That means other scientists can understand the nuts and bolts of what we've done and put it under the microscope. Um, and some people, 
would argue that by giving scientists an avenue for emotion, all of a sudden we're allowing them to be biased. We're allowing them to, you know, not display the the features that are a cultural norm. Now, my rebuttal to that is often I'm not asking the scientists to be emotional when they're doing their science. I'm asking them to, to keep doing exactly what they're doing, being those unbiased clinical scientists that work with ones and zeros and graphs and data and p-values and confidence levels. But then I'm asking them to stop and reflect on how that makes them feel. Um, and I look at, I think it's really difficult because scientists are very rarely just scientists, right? You know, you very rarely occupy one cultural sphere. You know, often you're, you're the centre of this overlapping Venn diagram of all these other expectations and cultures and, and um, social norms that uh, happen throughout your life. Um, now, I try and think of the scientists, that they've got to be experiencing, like we talk about ecological grief. I think it's, it's made even more intense by the fact that they are operating in all these different cultural norms. They, they would feel the pull to, to be a, a true scientist and, and exhibit the, the, um, the behavioural characteristics of a scientist and be impartial. But at the same time, they're parents. They're, you know, they're, they, they come from all these other spaces that have other social norms and expectations. And so it, it must be a really horrific clash. Mm-hmm. Something you said really got me thinking about, you know, um, audience in particular. I want to certainly come back to the specifics of the Is This How You Feel project, but I read the profile on your project by Melissa Sweet. And in that profile, you identify a set of four groups of people, potential audiences uh, that you consider when communicating climate science. Um, You name them, the active, the inactive, the apathetic, and the deniers. And you concede that the website primarily engages with the first two categories of people, but still aspires to mobilize the other two, if possible. In your experience, is there any way to engage the deniers? Is there an emotional register appropriate to communicating with those people? Is it worth the energy to get those people on board, despite what I would consider to be their destructive views? It's it's a real challenge, you know, and it's something that communicators uh, debate, discuss, and explore, um, and, and have done. It seems for for all time, but. We face this really, really interesting challenge in that you can show two different audiences with two different belief systems the same data, the same numbers, the same graphs, um, and they will understand it in a different way and in a way that supports their existing beliefs. There's some brilliant work that's been done around um, showing uh, different different groups within the US um, who have different views on, on gun control, showing them um, the data on on deaths and that sort of thing around gun violence. And depending on their existing viewpoint, they'll use that same data to support their argument. So all of a sudden we're like, well, you know, let's, let's take that to, uh, to look, at it, look at climate change through that lens. And if we were to, to show uh, a climate denier or, you know, someone right on the, the far left of things, the same data, it's entirely possible that they will use that data to support their existing beliefs. So that takes us to a point of, okay, if they're just the facts isn't enough, let's use emotions. Um, but you're still, they don't necessarily work either. You know, I've been, I've been attacked by um, uh, 
Tim Blair, who is a sort of a keyboard warrior for the Daily Telegraph. He writes a lot of um, inflammatory blogs. Um, and one of the titles to an article that he wrote was Feelings, Nothing But Feelings. And um, attacking scientists for showing their feelings and using that as a way to um, to knock them down. Um, but but there is hope, you know, and and often this phrase gets thrown thrown around that climate change is a wicked problem, and what that means is that there's social, there's there's economic aspects, um, there's there's ecological aspects to climate change, and so it becomes this really complex, interlinked thing that you can't necessarily address by focusing on one element. But what it means is that climate change affects a whole bunch of things, and so all you need to do is find the thing that matters to the audience that you are trying to reach. So if, if um, let's say we go back to the, the original audience of someone that's on the far right, someone that's on the far left, on the far left, I might use a, an argument that centres around um, the ecological, ecological impacts of climate change. But if I was going to speak to someone else that was all about jobs and growth, I'd probably talk about the economic impacts of climate change and and try and um, find the part of the problem that matters to that person. Um, and and so in a, in a sense, I think maybe is this how you feel? And this this um, this emotional approach might reach someone that is a, a you know a, a strongly strongly opposed denier. But I think we need to be realistic as well. That makes sense. Yeah, be and and be strategic. Um, and and on that and on that question of strategy, you know, the the project, you know, uses this key technology, this analog technology of handwritten letters, um, to communicate the specific emotional reaction that climate scientists are having to the ecological state of things right now, as we seem to accelerate toward collapse. And I wonder just simply why handwritten letters? I mean, how did you devise the idea? Was was part of the point to use that analog thing, the nature of someone's handwriting to create this sort of economy of feeling to use or affective economy to use Sarah Ahmed's term? Can you can you speak to that? Certainly. Um, the thought behind the handwritten written letters, um, in its simplest sense, it was to try and remove the steps between the scientist and the audience. Um, it, was, it was about, you know, if, if you went to a particularly one of the hard copy exhibitions, which is where this idea originally started, you could, you could, see, you could see what the scientist had done. You could see the emotion as their hand moved across the page. Um, one, of the, one of the other sort of added benefits has been in Stepping away from the computer, picking up a pen and paper, it's this unconscious change for a scientist. And, and I think what's actually happened is it's been a trigger to communicate in a different way for those scientists. If I'd asked them to stay at their computer and, and type a response, they may well have gone into that same, um, same mode of communication that they'd use in their day-to-day work lives. Um, and different language, unrelatable um, modes of communication, um, jargon, these sort of things that make a, a message very hard to relate to. Um, you know, I even had scientists that were saying, I haven't written a letter in like four years. I had to go and find a pen and paper. Um, and and the, other, the other thing was that in asking them to write a letter, it almost um, 
increased the, uh, the the immediacy. It increased the um, they didn't necessarily stop and think too deeply, and and it added a certain amount of freedom to what they said. You know, some of the original letters. I've got one that was written on the back of a um, a paper that one of the scientists were marking. You know, they literally had something on their desk, turned it upside down, and wrote their letter straight away. And so there's this fluidity, there's this openness to the letters, and I think that makes them um, even more relatable. Yeah, it's something that I, I responded to as well. There's something about the immediacy, but also the the fact that it slows down thinking, I think, that makes it very powerful. And, you know, you've the stated goal, in fact, of is this how you feel, is to develop, quote, engaging science communication that will more effectively confront, quote, the general public with the human side of climate change. I wonder, though, like in addition to that, that goal of starting important conversations and speaking to uh, particular audiences, whether the goal of the project from your perspective is also to inspire divestment from fossil fuel companies. I mean, what specific sort of change are you looking for or envisioning? Um, do you have that in mind in, in you know, developing this project? Um, it's a real, it's a really interesting, um, really interesting challenge. You know, what is, what is your your call to action or your take home message? And I think they can actually be two different things. If I if we look at is this how you feel? I think my key message, the thing that I'm trying to convey to people, is that that scientists are human beings. You know, um, and if if that is a message that can be solidified in someone's mind it doesn't matter what the message that the scientist is trying to convey but it's going to be more easily and more readily accepted by that audience member um, you know we think about COVID-19 and maybe we could move on to that in a little bit but that idea of uh, scientists are conveying models and expectations and and realities or, or possible realities to the masses and Sometimes they're being accepted, sometimes they aren't. The same thing is true for scientists communicating on climate models. So, that, look, key message is I want to show that scientists are real people. But my call to action, the thing that I want people to do, I've tried to have something that's a really low barrier to entry. Um, certainly there are options on the website for lobby local government um, new platforms or more platforms to engage with scientists. But really, what I want to do is, is get people to do something, no matter how simple, no matter how easy. And what I've asked is that people write their own letter. And it, it's not going to change the world. You know, someone writing a letter isn't, isn't going to, to drive a revolution. But what it is going to do is to take them one step closer to engaging with the broader issue. And maybe it will show, if they share it online, it will show their immediate circle that they are engaging with that issue and that can have a ripple effect. I'm, I'm trying to move people as, as little as possible to have the most positive impact. Um, and look, certainly divestment and um, a greater ecological awareness and, and so many other things are, are key, but what we want is just that little first step. And I think that that little first step is actually huge. I mean, uh, engagement itself and, and you know, uh, uh, entering into politics, not imagining politics to be something that happens, you know, in an election cycle, but something that happens every day uh, is potentially emancipatory, I think, 
So I, I think it's 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 very you know it could be very influential that first step. Well, and there's been there's been examples where you know it, it has led to some really amazing things. I've seen people in exhibitions walk around and literally tell me, "I used to be apathetic and disengaged, and now I want to do something. What can I do?" I've had um, schools in Hong Kong write their students write like 400 letters and and be determined to send them to. Uh, at the time, Donald Trump, um, you know, so all of a sudden these little actions, they can snowball, they can have a bigger impact. And that's, you know, that's got to be a silver lining. Absolutely. And, and, and I think one of the key things is uh, um, a moment of reflection to kind of consider the nature of the system and people are becoming sort of amateur epidemiologists and informing themselves. There is this step into um, a, a more active political engagement uh, with, you know, the what emerging infections mean and also how they they test the system and expose cracks in the system. So I think, yeah, there are moments of crisis that can, you know, lead to this, this political awakening um, and it can be very meaningful. You know, you, you talk about, uh, I think on Twitter, um, you know, reaching a, a level of emotional exhaustion, you call it climate fatigue, where you admit you had to step away from your own project and, and you retreated into what you call a shell for a period of time. It took a toll on you. And, and I guess, you know, can you speak to that? But also why at this moment, five years after you started the project, did you decide to go back and, and renew it? In 2014, the project started... Um... Well, in, in my mind, at the very beginning, it was quite different. It was, I'd watched a documentary called The Great Climate Swindle, which is essentially, a, you know, it was a rebuttal to Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, except that it was um, complete bullshit. Uh, it was, it was, excuse my language, it was, um, it was coming from, uh, you know, groups of deniers. It was, it was, it was 101 on how to muddy the waters and how to, um, put out red herrings and, and how to, to discredit facts. Um, and I, I got angry, you know, I was, I was, I was young and I was passionate and I, I wanted, given what I understood about communication, I knew that these guys or these people were, they were breaking the rules. You know, they were, they, they weren't fighting fair, um, which of, of course they're not going to, you know, but it, it, coming from a, a naive space, I was, I was incensed. And I wanted, I wanted the scientists to be able to fight back. I wanted scientists to be able to pick at the streets. I wanted them to use the approaches that areas like Greenpeace or you know other PETA, these these groups that um, don't necessarily <clears throat> always have the most positive impacts and don't always necessarily communicate in the right way. But shit, people know about them and they get airtime. And I was like, well, why can't scientists do that? Why can't scientists, you know, climb to the top of Big Ben and unfurl a a banner? Um, Why can't civil disobedience be a way that we get a message across? Um, And I I mused on this for for quite a while. And and I eventually calmed down and and considered what the the pros and cons of those sort of approaches were, but, but was determined to at least explore another avenue, another mode, another way of communicating. Um, and so I, I, I settled on this idea of handwritten letters and for all the reasons we've spoke, spoken about. This, uh, it's, a, it's a way to get the scientists to speak differently. It's a different way of aesthetically um, portraying a message. Um, and 
honestly, to my surprise, it it, it went bang. It it got coverage all over the world. We were getting, <clears throat> I say we, it, it was me. <laughs> I was I was doing this by myself at the same time as um, studying full time. Actually, at that point. Um, and so I would be working or, or um, doing assignments throughout the day and then making sure I set my alarm for 3 a.m. to do an interview um, with, uh, say, Grist or Mother Jones or, um, you know, The Gothamist, one of these American uh, publication outlets. Uh, and <clears throat> for a while I was, I was buoyed by the fact that this tiny project was getting attention. Um, Certainly, with the support of those sort of outlets came um, the trolls and, and the, uh, <laughs> the the acid and the anger from the right. Um, oh, certainly, certainly. Um, and I, you know, it was at that point I was sort of happy that it was just me because it would it could just be me that was dragged across the coals. Um, and in all honesty, it didn't it didn't really impact me too much because that wasn't the audience I was trying to reach. Um, but we, it got to a point where after probably two years, it had, it had gone bang, it had got reach, um, but I hadn't changed the world and of of course I wasn't going to change the world. Of course I wasn't, but I'd poured my heart and soul into it because I wanted to try and do good. I wanted to try and have a positive impact. Um, and certainly I had. But it, it, if it wasn't continually pushed and if it wasn't um, turned into something that was, you know, orders of magnitude bigger, then I started to think, well, maybe it was pointless. Um, I think that coupled with a whole bunch of different things, you know, changing life and work circumstances and um, changing pressures meant that uh, maybe the project was just the straw that broke the camel's back. And um, I... <clears throat> ended up stepping away and but to the point where I as I say I went into my shell I, I withdrew completely I turned off professional personal social media I, I stopped talking to people you know um, and I used that time to I suppose get better um, but then recently yeah. um, my partner and I are expecting our first child which is amazing um, it, <laughs> thank you very much um, and with that comes a whole bunch of, uh, let's say, environmental questions um, as well because bringing a person into the world has a massive carbon footprint. Um, I mean, so does having a Labrador and driving an SUV, but but having a, having a child is, is a significant one. Um, and so I str- we talked about and struggled with those considerations. But also I... I I started to realise that these kids have been brought into a world where, in, in a certain sense, the die's already cast. You know, the the a certain future is inevitable, um, at least part of that future. And if these children survive and 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 grow up and and live in this new world. Of course they're going to turn around and go, why didn't you do more? You know, of, of course they are. You think back uh, in Australia right now, it's, it's Anzac Day, which is a, a, a day where we commemorate the um, uh, soldiers that lost their lives throughout the wars, particularly the First and Second World War. You know, and and you, you, 
think back to those times now and you think, shit, those people, they were naive. They went off to war um, and, and, and hundreds of thousands lost their lives. How come they didn't know? How come they didn't do more? And um, I think in, in that example, it's because they didn't know. They didn't know what war held. They didn't know what they were in for. We're in a position now where we do. We've got models, we've got data, we can see what the future looks like, and yet we're still going blindly in this direction where people will inevitably die. Um, and so I don't want my kids in a generation's time to look back and go, why didn't you do more? Why didn't you fight harder? Um, and so that for me was the huge motivation for, um, for coming back to the project. Um, I've tried to work differently this time. I've tried to um, include more people in the project, get more support, um, and hopefully not burn out in the same way that I did the first time around. Yeah, I think that's a you know very relatable, very human story, and I'm glad that you've you've you know brought it back. I think it's an important project, uh, especially now because it's not even it's not even the future we need to fear. It's in fact the impact of a warming climate on the present. I mean there are places in the world where um, you're feeling this impact immediately. And, and to, to that point, you know, in a recent appearance on Democracy Now!, you know, Bill McKibben, uh, he referenced Ronald Reagan's famously catchy kind of neoliberal mantra. The scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to, here to help. And he subverts that and says, no, in fact, the scariest words in the English language are things like, we're all out of ventilators, or the hillside behind your house is on fire, right? These immediate threats to human uh, survival, collective well-being. Is it important from your perspective for your project to return at this moment? Because there is um, a moment now where in, in many ways, the effects of climate change are frighteningly immediate for people. Can you speak to the ways that, for example, you know, the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef or these unprecedented wildfires that we're seeing have impacted the public's imagination? Do you see this as sort of a moment of opportunity? There's a distinction to be made here. And I think um, I'd, I'd say for people, not knowing you well, Scott, but I'd say for people like you and me, um, upper middle class white males, we've had we've had 30 plus years where the world's been really fucking good to us you know we've we've and and well for upper middle class white males probably uh, probably many generations but but for um for the for white classes in the western world the past 30 years have been really easy and look i'm it's a that's a sweeping statement but i think largely that is true for people that live for for people that live on the fringes, for minorities, bad shit's been happening forever. Um, now, the the difference now with with climate change in particular is that that bad shit's going to start happening to us more. You know, it's one of the things that Dave Anthony, a brilliant comedian, says. You know, bad things have always happened, but now they're happening to us. Um, and so I think of I think of people from uh, Kiribati, people from um, the Micronesian countries that have been literally the way they experience climate change is that they have to dig up their grandparents and move them to higher ground because their graves are getting washed away. Um, we, we talked about uh, one of the researchers that was working with Inuit communities. It's those, those communities' sense of identity are so closely linked to sense of place 
that if climate change impacts their place, they 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 lose themselves. Um, you know, and in, Inuit communities are losing ice, and, and there's a great quote that came out of that that particular article in the Guardian. That you know is we something along the lines of we are ice people. How do we live if there is no ice? Um, and and so to, I think it's important to make that distinction that that um, the the various minorities have been facing this challenge for much longer than us, um, but. Yes, for, for, for us now, the, the world is changing in a way that is having a, a massive impact. Um, and I think the time is right because for, for the masses, this, these sort of wicked problems are being pushed to the fore. And so it does make sense to, to strike whilst the iron's hot, as it were, or getting hotter. Yeah, well said. Uh, I, I was hoping I could quote... A recent letter uh, contributed to the to the website from uh, Ailey, Dr. Ailey Gallant, who asked, I think, a very important question uh, about, like, you know, the kind of tipping point. I suppose, you know, she asks, "What is climate change's COVID moment?" Right? She 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 wonders if the bushfires, for example, are a quote sufficient catastrophe, which I think is such an incredible phrase. Um, how do you interpret that question? I, I wonder because it seems to me that it sort of can't be one moment, right? It's a, it's a constellation of moments. Energy transition is such a complicated thing. And oil is obviously such a, a central part of the whole system of global capitalism at present. And, and that's partly evidenced by the fact that the media is fixating on the fact that oil prices have dropped into negative numbers in the, in the current pandemic to flatten the climate change curve, to use uh, Galant's phrase, don't we have to, act, in fact, restructure global society in some kind of lasting way, you know, address these, these attachments that we have to consumer freedom, limitless pursuit of profit? And doesn't that require us to link multiple moments together? There's so many elements of this. I think, yes, um, the idea of, of one COVID moment to, to rewrite the narrative on climate change is, is unlikely but if we go too far in the other direction we become the frog in the boiling water you know the, the temperature is increasing but it's so gradual that we don't notice till we're dead one silver lining and one observation to come out of uh, COVID-19 and, and I think the silver lining is for somewhere like Australia People are starting to have a new appreciation and a new understanding of data modelling. We've, we've been shown two possible curves, and one of those curves is a hockey stick curve that looks exactly like um, the increases in carbon dioxide part per million over the last, you know, since Industrial Revolution. Um, and the next curve is a new scenario if we undertake systemic change in how we live, how we operate, um, how society functions, we can change the shape of that curve. And I think that's, um, I think that's so powerful. Now, unfortunately, if we look at somewhere like America, um, we, we see a very different reality. Um, this idea that... Uh, Essentially, stick, stick your hockey curve up your ass because we want freedom. And, and what that gets is an even a steeper increase to the curve and, and more people uh, die 
Now, it's it's this it's this chicken and egg situation, you know. Do do we need all the people to change, or do we need the system to change? What needs to come first? Um, but in in Australia, both those things have happened together, and this curve is changing. Um, in the states, where where capitalism is king, and there isn't healthcare that you know there isn't free healthcare, and if you get sick, don't worry, as long as you're rich and white, you will be okay. That makes those people. Go, go out to the streets and go, I want my freedom back. If I get sick, I'll be okay. Um, don't make me stay indoors. And, and that's the sort of response that we don't want to see for COVID-19, but it's also the response that we don't want to see for climate change. Um, <laughs> so, look, I, I think that a COVID moment or this this maybe COVID is the COVID moment for climate change, right? At least in some parts of the world. If we can get this change in how people, if, if people can start to see that changing their behaviour sharply and quickly won't make the sky fall in um, and will save lives, then maybe that can be something that we can transfer to, to climate change. Yeah, I think it, there is that possibility, right? There's this kind of awakening. Arundhati Roy has called COVID a, a kind of portal, right? Um, and it, it's opening up these these moments of like imagining an alternative future. And in on that point, I mean, the the newest letters, and and there is some of this in the in the um, the kind of first iteration of the letters, but especially in the newest one, uh, the newest series, there's a, a real emphasis on hope, and hope is such a, a you know. Uh, an important, uh, um, you know, mode of communication when it comes to articulating a progressive politics. I think it resonates with people, and 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 so I wanted to kind of address that. And, and through, in particular, this beautiful letter from acclaimed climate scientist Dr. Leslie Hughes, who conveys it, I think, beautifully when she says that hope is our fundamental strategy in the face of what she calls apocalyptic fires. And and Gallant, who I mentioned, sees. Uh, hope in, in, as you say, their global response to COVID-19 by observing that, quote, governments can and will take swift and decisive action that reshapes our lives overnight. Do you think this, I think, fairly ubiquitous emphasis on hope comes from a sense that, you know, depression, anxiety, these things are generally deterrents to people engaging with the reality that, that we face? Or is it about creating, as we've sort of addressed, spaces for sharing some of these non-cathartic emotions in order to move to a place of hope by kind of validating those feelings. I'm reminded of a, oh gee, a communication paper that was written probably in 2009 by a researcher called O'Neill, um, but the title was Fear Won't Do It. And essentially it centered around the fact that, you know, if you, if you show just apocalyptic futures, it's paralyzing, right? People won't act. But I don't think these climate scientists are making that conscious connection. I don't think they're saying, shit, I need to put hope in here, otherwise I'm doing more bad than good. I genuinely, I genuinely believe that they are finding rays of hope in what is happening. And one of the, you talk about some of the themes coming through in the new letters, one of the ones that has bolstered me huge amounts uh, are references to school strike for climate, to, to Greta Thunberg, to, to young people that are, are rallying and, and scientists saying, this makes me keep going, which is, for me, 
Right, and it, that is beautiful but because it's, it's these school students, these young people that so often feel powerless in this situation, right? They, they can't vote. They, can't, they, they certainly feel that their voices are so often not heard. And for them to be able to connect their actions to the scientists on the front line, that's so powerful. You know, it shows that the the actions of these young people are having a tangible impact on the future. And look, maybe it's not through um, politics, but they're bypassing that and going straight to the people that are telling us what the future is going to look like. Um, And I I think that's so powerful. And I think it's such an important connection to draw out and emphasise. And I wonder too, you know, in the face of this global pandemic, whether young people are engaging with the root causes of of such things, they're going to necessarily be engaging in how you know, however exhausted emotionally away with what's happening around them. But it's it's vividly happening, right, in ways that are no longer abstract. And and I think that seems to be the crucial thing. I mean. Um, the WHO two years ago published papers regarding this emergence of disease X, this abstract idea of a, a pathogen that could cause the kind of social collapse um, that we're currently seeing. But they were largely dismissed, even laughed at for taking this, I think, important, you know, future oriented approach to preparing uh, for this these outbreaks. So now it's it's no longer possible to just you know, laugh that off. Um, do you think that people are sort of educating themselves and maybe even empowering themselves in in the face of such threats? Certainly. I think um, it's so funny, isn't it, the fact that the World Health Organization said this is a reality that we could experience. As you say, they were, they were almost laughed at. Um, and then it's now, it's now real. Um, my hope is that the the reality and the immediacy of these new global challenges for again that that, that are facing and impacting for quite often the first time the the white western world maybe that is what we need for the system change you know maybe maybe this can be um the thing that starts to make the the machine turn in a slightly different way uh, and and yeah i think that Young people are experiencing the world differently now because because they are going through this time where where these risks and, and challenges are real. I just have really one more question for you, and I think it it stems from what you just mentioned, you know, and it's about the the use of your your project as an educational resource. The National Museum of Australia included the letters that you collected as part of an environmental history gallery. Uh, and you note on the project's Twitter that it's extremely important for cultural institutions to address the Anthropocene and anthropogenic climate change. The site has become itself a vital educational resource. I myself use it. And it's it's especially valuable, I think, because of its accessibility, both in terms of the fact that it's open source and it's just emotionally bridgeable, but it also offers, uh, as you put it, a template for student reflections on climate anxieties. What have you learned, I guess, about the challenges of effective environmental messaging? Is there any insight you can give to young people who are moved by the work that you're doing? And do you think overall it could be mobilizing to relate to people how this massive problem of climate change feels to the people studying it directly immobilizing. 
I think um, there's a few things to draw out there. Relate back to my earlier point of the the actions that um, even the most seemingly powerless take can have a huge positive impact. You know, school strike for climate is um, reaching these scientists on the front line. But but the other thing that I think the 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 website shows is that there's always there's always something you can do no matter who you are there is always something that you can do to help contribute to this solution Um, and for young people um, I think that's a really important message to hear Um, and maybe it is just writing a letter you know and and as I said earlier that's not going to change the world but it's a step in the right direction maybe it's just talking to your parents about what's going on have your voice heard um, so often we we go down the path of of not having a conversation or not engaging with an issue because we feel like we're a tiny piece of the puzzle and it's not going to change anything. Um, but I think in, in today's world, today's climate, we need to all speak and have our voices heard. Um, and that's that's where revolutions start. That's that's how systems change. So so for for me, I I want. I want this resource to be online and I'm so happy that educators are opting to use it because it's a it's an opportunity for students to take that first step. For sure. And and I love too that it it's amplifying particular voices in the face of this combative climate of communication where you have people that are more than willing to, as you say, break the rules, create you know, uh, gridlock through misinformation and so on. So um, I think it's a vital resource for that reason as well. It kind of cuts through that and and creates this, yeah, this discourse that is not just about fear. Um, well, I, to, yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, look, as a, as a piece of science communication, it's, it's not very good because it doesn't, it doesn't really convey science. Um, but that's fine because it's, it doesn't necessarily need to, you know, it's, it's, it's about conveying emotion, you know, and, that, and that's the first step to open people up to then move on to understanding or digesting the science, right? It's like step 1A. Um, and I think sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we, we go straight to, you know, that didactic communication approach of more facts will fix the problem or, you know, I'm going to shake my fist at these people until they understand the science when that's not necessarily the right approach. Sometimes a slower, a more nuanced approach that, that starts by setting a scene for discourse, setting a scene for dialogue, um, that's, that's a safer, slower but more effective way to go. Wow, Joe, thank you so much for talking to me. Um, It's been really terrific. And uh, yeah, I I genuinely appreciate it. I I really appreciate your time, Scott. It's nice to be able to um, (laughs) chat freely.